It's time to make the dough rise, the financial podcast with Brian Doe. Hey, it's another episode of Make the Dough Rise. Walter Storholt here with Brian Doe, certified financial planner, living worth wealth advisors in the Lake Country and beyond, based out of Greensboro, Georgia. We're online at livingworth.com. And welcome to the show, Brian. Good to be with you once again. How are you? I am limping back to health. I just uh, duked limping it out with back. COVID a couple of weeks ago. and uh, Oh, man. Well, that, it wasn't bad, but I have just been dragging around uh, for about week to 10 days now. So hopefully that'll, that'll get, get behind me here pretty soon. Such a weird thing. And it's some people it hits hard and fast and then they're, you know, they get better quickly. Others, the actual like initial sickness isn't so bad, but then it just lingers forever and other people yeah, never even yeah. know they have it. So it's just so, so still bizarre, even though we've, you know, kind of been dealing with it now for two plus years. Yeah, I, I didn't lose smell or taste or any of that stuff, fortunately. But um, but, fe- but, fever but you lost weight for- you were bragging about before the show. No, I don't need to lose. <laughs> I, not to brag. Now I'm bragging. I, I don't need to lose weight. I need to put on muscle. And yeah, I think it went down there about eight go. pounds because I lost my appetite. We, we call that a humble brag. That's a humble, humble brag. brag. There you yeah, go. Exactly. Uh, well, yes. Uh, thank you for uh, we had to put off our recording a week, folks. So we're glad to have Brian back in action this week. And uh, I know you're still kind of uh, recovering a little bit, maybe a cough here and there, folks, but bear with us. We'll do our best to edit those out as we go through the show today. So Brian sounds nice and smooth throughout the program. Um, this is going to be a fun one because we are, as we dive in here, we're going to be talking about a specific book and a specific chapter out of a book that uh, Brian is reviewing for us. And then we're even going to give you the chance uh, later on in the show, we'll tell you how you can do this, how you can get a free copy of this book that we're talking about. So look forward to telling people the details on that, Brian. Why are we breaking down this book on today's show? Give us some insight into how you came across this and uh, why this particular chapter speaks to you. Yeah, well, we got together with all of the advisors from uh, Main Street, which is obviously the registered investment advisory firm I'm a member of. And we had about 25 advisors there. And our good friend, Brett Danko, was was passing out copies of this book. And that's his tradition. Every year he, he hands out a book. But he was particularly excited about this book. And for for a book to excite Brett, who's who's quite the you know, student and scholar and, and really studies everything, uh, you know, financial and markets and, you know, financial planning teaches it every day. I said, well, geez, if he's that excited about it, I, b- I better take a look at this book because there's no shortage of financial and, and kind of self-helpish books in this category. But I, I picked it up and I've, I've, to be fair, I've not read the entire book, but I've skimmed and looked through a few chapters and I'm looking forward to, to getting the rest of it. But because of everything going on in the world with the markets, inflation, interest rates, recession, market pulling back, actually entering bear market territory. I thought this would be a great time to pull back out some of those lifelong lessons that stand the test of time. And this book does a really nice job of just giving us some examples, what to do, what not to do, uh, how it's more of a psychology and mental game as much as it is is a a science and investing type game. And, And just knowing what game you're playing can make a, a huge difference to avoiding the big mistakes on the downside. That That is far more valuable than anything you do on the upside. Well, I know this is right up your alley then because you love looking at that psychological side or the emotional side of investing and saving and finances in addition to the numbers aspect too. So uh, this, I'm sure, is uh, fun for you to break down and to look at. Uh, so where in particular are we going to zero in today? 
Well, we're going to start with chapter five, and the title of it is Getting Wealthy Versus Staying Wealthy. And as we know, as different people we've encountered or you know, how we our path to uh, fortune, everybody has a potentially different story. Maybe it was a they were with the right company. Maybe they just saved diligently over time. Maybe they inherited money. There's a million ways to potentially get rich and the type of optimism, risk-taking, and uh, forward-looking uh, you know, positivity that you've got to have to get rich. That's one thing. And I've, I kind of joke with people that on the upside, you know, as we've accumulated wealth, maybe we get a, a good stock here or there, we attribute our success to skill. And oftentimes we begin to think that, oh, I'm good enough to, I did this once, I can do this again, or it'll be easy to you know, just make the same trade or you know, whatever worked that was luck. Many people discount or miss because they think it's skill. And so you know, that can create a lot of problems and, and traps. On the flip side, whenever anything goes wrong, how many people say, oh, I, it was unlucky. Yeah. Oh, I, unlucky. I made a bad, mm-hmm. yeah, the, the market went against me. My, it, it, and so it's, it's always self-attributed skill when they're going up and then just bad luck when you, when you get down. And the reality is a lot of it is just luck. It's, uh, it's kind of a tough reality for people to come to grips with, right? Yeah, I mean, they, when I lived in Atlanta, I worked with a lot of people that were with Coca-Cola and UPS and you know, Bell South before it became AT&T. And, you know, they they were with the right company. They had the company stock purchase plan. They maybe got, you know, compensated with some stock options. That was a popular thing that back then. And And I had a similar experience at Merrill Lynch, just to be fair and put a cautionary tale to this. A lot of my deferred compensation and everything went into Merrill Lynch stock. And man, at $100 a share, it was awesome. And then the financial crisis rolled in and the stock went down to $3 a share. And it was not so awesome. What was that skill or was that luck? It was bad luck. It was good luck on the upside and it was bad luck on the downside. And I did not have a lot of control over that. That was just the way the company compensated you. So I'm just I'm putting that out there as a, as a personal example to say everything that that gets you where you're going may not be the skill that keeps you there. And uh, Dan Sullivan loves to takes a little quote out, out of the Old Testament, or he he paraphrases the Old Testament. And he says the skills that get you up out of slavery aren't necessarily the skills that get you into the promised land. You know, talking about Moses and the you know the, the trek up out of Egypt, and that applies very much to getting wealthy versus staying wealthy. So that's the uh, central theme of today's episode and of this chapter of the book. So, uh, what are some other ways, I guess, that people kind of come into that wealth that might fall under that luck category? Well, I think most people who have built their own wealth have have developed a, a level of discipline. And, and have this healthy combination of frugality and you know, paranoia about the future. Like I said, you've got to be optimistic and risk-taking to invest and get rich. But then if you don't have the same caution and frugality and, and, and paranoia again about the future, then, then it, can, it can go very badly. So what I like to do is look at instances of sudden wealth, lottery winners, uh, beneficiaries of you know, inheritances and trust funds, 
and, and even some of those you know, concentrated stock, or maybe, maybe you had a really good investment that 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 paid off, and you got fabulously wealthy on on a particularly good investment. So many of those uh, winners, and I'll give I tell you, I'll give you a specific story. In the early two thousands, there were a bunch of uh, taxi cab drivers that all played the Powerball in Atlanta. So they they had a little pool, and they'd get you know at the taxi stands they'd all throw in a couple bucks and and every week they played the powerball well one week they won something in the neighborhood of like 60 65 million dollars and there were probably 23 or 24 uh participants in this payout and they all got about a million three a million four after federal taxes were taken out 18 months later a handful had actually spent all the money and had never paid the state income taxes and they actually owed money oh no Went, uh, from, went went from good to to not good to bad. Quickly. It just went all the way up. Went from I'm a millionaire to I, I have a tax lien against me. A big chunk in the middle probably squandered it down to two to four hundred thousand dollars, and then there were one or two who actually left the money intact and and still had the bulk of the money. So so within a couple of years, you watched all these people become millionaires and then have an expectation about how a millionaire lives and maybe combined with a sense of uh, guilt or unearned sudden wealth, they go buy stuff for, you know, buy a house for your mom. You got to buy a brother, a car, you, it, you know, people wanted to borrow money, everything that you can imagine that, that would squander that money and, and, you know, spending on themselves, of course, uh, just disappeared. And so what people think a millionaire does for those who have actually become millionaires and are holding their their status there, it, it's two very different skills. So uh, again, it's just it, it's it's crazy to see what people do. And I, you know, I'm on the end of helping people with estate planning and leaving money to heirs. And so so even if you're a mil, you know, you get your million dollars and you're frugal and, and things are continuing to increase and things are going well. This is what I'm talking about today is important too. If you're planning to leave money and you need to make sure you prepare those that are going to inherit it. Helpful information there, Brian. Interesting to look at those different ways that people kind of, you know, come to this, uh, come into money and uh, the different journeys that they take there. And then you're right. You can start to see that no matter what path you took to get there, how the game really changes when it comes to staying there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this boils down to, the and I think you mentioned earlier, th there's a trade-off between the science of investing and the emotion of investing. And we've talked many times about behavioral finance and uh, all the behaviors that it, and, and emotions that you have to manage. And it's very true. It's, it's very very true. So we we have figured out the science of investing. And I would say things like diversification, asset allocation, making sure you've got you know, cash buffers, a certain amount of bonds for, for bad times. Those are all things that really we've figured out in the last, you know, probably 50 years or so. Uh, Benjamin Graham and some of those came out with, with you know, the value investing, uh, investing for the long haul. Warren Buffett, obviously, is, is a name we'll talk about in a little bit. And, and the, the science of investing is much more known, available. Uh, we have low-cost index funds and and uh, low low frictional cost of trading you, you don't have to get that lucky investment like we used to maybe think we had to do and, and so this this science is 
well-known, most financial advisors would, would, would practice the, these concepts and, uh, you know, portfolio managers do the same thing. So the science of this is largely taken care of for us. And, and if we just apply those principles, the problem is, is we're dealing with emotion, dopamine, adrenaline, cortisol. Th these are real things that your body responds to moves in the market. When you look at your statement, you look at your net worth, uh, what, what your income is. And if those things are rising, you feel great. It's, it's, it's fantastic. But on the flip side, the stress and chemical reaction in your body is, is very, a very real thing that you, you have to fight. And so what you have to do is get in a buffer so that you don't have to sell. So many people spend so much time trying to figure out how to beat the market or make a little bit more at a percent, you know, here and there. Uh, and they, they invest a tremendous amount of time and, and money trying to beat on the upside. But the reality is, is if you have to sell when the market is down, you're going to inflict more damage on your portfolio that will offset potentially years of, of market baiting performance. So you've really, really got to do things to manage these emotions and protect yourself on the downside. Lots of different uh, elements. What about managing those emotions? What are some practical ways that we can, can do that? What have you seen work over the years? You have a plan. And I say that, and immediately as I say that, I'm going to say plan on the plan failing. Okay. <laughs> So have a plan. That's a little different than just like uh, expect the worst or plan for the worst, expect the best. That's a little different. It's like have a plan and plan for that plan to fail. Well, I mean, if the plan works, it's possible that it will work. But if it does not, and you're really not in control, it's a sequence of returns. I'm not going to go down that whole path right now, but you're not in control of when you receive what types of returns. And so it, it's very important that you do have a strategy that says, well, if, if we have the worst of times, I, I've got a plan that works. And so when I say plan on the plan failing, I'm, I'm saying plan on the optimistic end of the plan failing, but then have uh, a backup or a downside plan so that you can, you can get through those. So I'll bring up Benjamin Graham again. He's a great value investor. And he says to have a margin of safety. And he says the purpose of uh, a margin of safety is to render the the plan unnecessary. So you have to have a plan, sit down, know what's possible, what you're trying to accomplish. I mean, it, that is a comforting thing uh, to, to go through a, a planning exercise. So I would say from, from nothing else, j just to have clarity, a little bit of vision, know what your, your, your parameters and capabilities are. That part of planning is always good. And that, that, the other quote I always hear is, you know, planning works, but plans don't. No plan really survives more than about two or three years of, of time. What the market does, what you do with your personal life, what costs come up, especially if you have kids and things like that. There, there's so many variables out there. You can't plan and control and predict every single one of those. So, um, you know, when you look at those, the sequence of return type things, I remember back in the late 90s, early 2000s, we'd been on a, you know, 18 year near uninterrupted bull market. We had one little hiccup in what 91 and everybody was figuring out, oh, gosh, what am I going to do with all this extra money? They were doing their estate planning, worried about estate taxes and all those kinds of things because they got used to the prosperity and thought it was going to last. They extrapolate that into the future 
And then by 2009, you know, we'd had the dot-com bubble bust and September 11 and the Enron WorldCom scandals. And then we moved into the uh, housing market debacle. And by 2009, just 10 years later, everybody was wondering if they were still going to be able to eat. So this environment that you're living through, this time period that you're living through, you don't have a lot of control over all these variables. You can't predict and and control what's what's going to happen. But if you've got a strategy, then you can you could definitely you know manage those things. Hard to figure out the the right moves. And sometimes we look at that past performance. It can uh, not really tell us how this next one is going to shape up. So there's that's why I can see why we have this plan and one that needs to be tweaked, adjusted, thrown out and started anew. Uh, makes a lot of sense because times are always they're new today and they're going to be new in 10 years and 10 mm-hmm. years after that we'll be saying oh yeah well back in you know 2022 you could have done x y and z um, just like we're looking back now at 1999 and 2009 and some of those time frames so that, that, yeah. i think that's great to set that expectation that you know things are going to be different you're going to have to make that that change happen yeah and, and times are different uh so, so some of the anecdotal uh observations or or you know they're, these they're an anecdote they're, they're factual uh, comparisons if you go back to the let's, let's say post-civil war late 1800s into the early 1900s you know, you're talking about a 50 60 year time period there our recession cycle happened about every couple of years we, we'd have a boom and then boom we'd have a re- bust recession it was just constant boom bust boom bust boom bust uh, whereas today the gap between you know the boom periods last a lot longer, and the recessions you know they they come but they aren't uh, as frequent and severe. And what you, what you could potentially attribute that to uh, is open for a considerable amount of speculation. But um, it's interesting to note how that that time has changed. The other big change was if you go back to this you know the, these longer term time periods, there was a long time where the financial sector was not included in the indexes. Uh, so, so a major part of the economy wasn't even counted. And uh, the new addition, like the technology sector, that's a, a fairly recent development. I guess you could consider you know, a, any kind of new, uh, innovative, and you know, maybe some of the industrial companies were sort of the technologies of, of the time. But, but the high-tech sector is, is a totally new thing. So if you get stuck on one strategy, one company, uh, one, one approach to things and you don't adapt and, and change over time, then you're, you're going to miss some of these things or you're going to make a major mistake. And I see too many people who they inherited, you know, mom's stocks that she'd held forever and they're emotionally attached to them and they won't, they won't sell them or, or they, they, they just have this, again, it's just an emotional attachment. To, to a, an investment and it's it's so illogical I, I don't understand it and I don't push people too hard when when they're feeling that way because I don't want to upset them but at the same time if you can't take a realistic look at hey this was a great investment it worked for mom for years but is this going to be the best thing you know going forward Th- those are again some of the emotions that you've got to manage 
Great points all across the board there, Brian. And again, uh, we're going to give away some copies of this book. So if you uh, have an interest in the psychology of money, the topic that we're talking about today, and want to check out that book uh, that's uh, kind of you know, launching us into this discussion, we'll tell you in a little bit how you can get your own copy of that. Um, what can we learn from the best here? Because I think um, you, know, you talk about staying the course, looking back at previous decades. I'd imagine we could learn a thing or two from you know how Warren Buffett has approached the psychology of money over the years. Yeah, he's he's the classic. He's the the point of reference that everybody has these days. And I think he started investing when he was about ten, and uh, what he's vectoring in on ninety. So let's let's call it eight decades of of experience. And to be fair, I suspect Warren Buffett had a fair amount of analytical skill and was good at dissecting, you know, financials of companies, you know, maybe making some qualitative investments about brands and market share and, and you know, what, what kinds of companies were going to be profitable and had staying power. But the more important thing to look at is what he didn't do. Warren Buffett has lived through 14 recessions. Okay. We're going through one right now. I don't care what they say from the podium in Washington, D.C. My prediction is we're in a recession and, and it could, it could last for you know, a few quarters for sure. If optimistically, maybe just last a, a two or three quarters. Warren never panicked. He didn't sell during the recessions that he lived through and he lived through some bad ones. I mean, the, the hyperinflation and, and the stagnation, stagflation, I guess they called it in the, the seventies. Um, you know, none of these times were opportunities for him to sell. And if, if anything, he was probably buying. He also never used debt, leveraging your portfolio. People do this with real estate. They go take out a mortgage. They buy a rental property. The rental property pays the, the, the mortgage. And, you know, that, that can work. And you can apply that same approach to your portfolio. But uh, there was a third partner to Berkshire Hathaway who we don't hear about because he had levered himself up and Warren bought out his shares at about 40 bucks a piece, I think back in the seventies, uh, because this, this wow. person was forced, forced into selling. So could, could you imagine having sold your, your Berkshire Hathaway Ooh. shares for 40 bucks? Not fun. It's crazy. Oops. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, he also didn't get stuck on one investment strategy. He is a little stodgy. He's a little slow to change, a little more old fashioned, but for the longest time, he resisted technology, technology companies. I think he got chummy with Bill Gates and bought a little bit of Microsoft. And then only recently, a few years ago, uh, if it's even been that long, he started taking big positions in Apple. Well, it's after Apple had huge run-ups. They went through their growth stage, but once they had their installed base and and the brand and the acceptance of that that's when Warren liked it that's when he got in so you know he he will evolve very slowly over time you know he's he talks smack against cryptocurrency right now which um, I, I I would argue some of his points on that but uh, you know at the same time he's not going to be the first one in so, but, so when when Bitcoin hits a hundred thousand he'll uh, he'll finally get in th- then maybe yeah he'll ride it up to two hundred fifty thousand right like that. right but that's that's incredible. Just that one example of how, even though he's slow to change and he's theoretically missed out on, you know, so many potential runups, just showing that his long term strategy still makes sense. He still is the most accomplished investor, even though he has never really kind of had the get rich quick element. 
mm-hmm. in uh, in his investments and his strategy. Yeah, and he's had a couple of you know bad experiences too. I think Kraft Heinz was was a bit of a, a disappointment for him. So it, it happens to the best of us. Don't beat yourself up if if these things happen. And if you missed the big run up in in certain stocks, if you're if you're careful, it it may. I remember not wanting to buy Amazon because it got up to nine hundred dollars a share, and then it proceeded to you know triple from there. And it's, obviously, it's pulled back right now. But you know, looking at things like well, it's too high, it's too late to get in. Uh, also, you know, potentially bad way of of looking at things. All great points across the board on today's episode, Brian. So, where to from here? If we're kind of looking at the psychology of investing, the psychology of saving and planning for the future, um, you know, where do we kind of steer the ship if we realize that maybe we've got some of these issues in our psychology of money? We've got some tendencies that lead us in the wrong direction. Uh, put, put, put a bow on this for us. Yeah, you you really need to know yourself. I mean, if if you can't handle the downside, if you truly can't take if the market goes down 10 or 20% in a particular period of time, then that's one thing that you have to know about yourself. Because obviously when your income's rising and your portfolio's rising and everything's on the upswing, it's very easy to feel confident. That feels good to have to have these things going up. But if you're that person, then those declines can feel equally bad. And especially if your portfolio values declining over years. And, and there's there's always this delicate trade-off between I want my I want to spend my last dollar and my last check to the IRS bounces. And that's the perfect financial plan. I I've used it all. But really people who have declining portfolios and you don't know how long you're going to live, people are living longer. Uh, you don't want to be put in a position where you've you've got your confidence going down. So you have to have a formula for success. And you might be surprised to learn, I have one. We did it on episode 64. It was called the cash flow confidence formula. And it is, as I've read this book, as I've worked with clients, this encapsulates exactly why I created this formula to be able to illustrate and show people this is how your portfolio is going to work. This is how many years you have before we have to sell everything. Here's what, where you're going to get your cash flow for the next five or 10 years. And that goes a long way. I have had more positive feedback and, and positive results and, and reactions. Oftentimes when we create the plan and we, we do the cash flow confidence formula, most people aren't really aware of what the durability of what we're doing. It's when you get into times like today that I bring that back out and say, remember when we did this? Remember this calculation? And you remember that cash that you hated when the market was going up? Well, you're going to love it today. I walk them back through it and they can put the fear of the moment aside. Go back to, hey, your your income is is happening. It's reliable. It's not going to stop. And and so in a bear market, you know, they end up loving that cash. I love the formula. And again, that was episode 64, by the way, cash flow confidence formula episode. We'll link to that in the show notes, the description of today's program. So you can find that very easily. And a great breakdown of all that we've talked about here today, Brian. I know that you enjoyed this book, thought it was a good one to share with folks. Before we tell people how to get a copy of this book, we're going to give away some free ones on today's show. Any final thoughts to uh, wrap up today's episode? 
The, the, the only thing I was going to pull out, one more thing I pulled out from uh, chapter five in this book is he's, he's got three points to applying a survival mindset to the real world. And he says three things, be financially unbreakable. And I, I love this one, plan on the plan, not going according to plan. And that's that's like exactly that. what, okay. what I've said there. And then uh, adopting a barbell personality. So this optimism about the future paired with a paranoia about you know, what could happen in the short term. So great book, great reminder of why you know, the psychology is as important to manage as the, the science and, and the financials of what you're doing. And yeah, I'd love to give a copy of this book to, to people. So um, what, I, what we'll do here is give out my cell phone number. And if you will call or text, and if you're a client, you know, just call or text and, and I'll, I'll get you a copy of this book. Uh, if you're new and you don't know me, don't be scared to call. I'm not going to sell you anything. Just call me and tell me your name, where to send a copy of the book. I'll get you a copy of this. Uh, my cell phone number is 404-593-4157. Don't spam me. Don't call me in the middle of the night. Don't call me at uh, you know, 5 a.m. And, and ask for your copy. If well, you do. Well, now that you've asked people not to do that, you know they're going to do it now. So so, so if, if you do, you're going to get my voicemail, and you can just leave me a message, and that'll there work just go. fine, too. There you go. Perfect. Uh, again, that's 404-593-4157. Call or text Brian and uh, request your free copy of the book, Psychology of Money, and uh, Brian will hook you up with a copy of that. So check it out. Uh, we'll put that number that you can call or text again in the description and in the show notes of today's episode so it's easy for you to access and request that free copy. Well, there you go. And I uh, hope that's helpful for folks. And uh, Brian, thank you for walking us through this book. Lots of great things to be aware of and to know. Chapter five is what we discussed today, but I'm sure the whole book will be relevant and interesting for people to check out. So hope they take advantage of it. And I know we'll have another great episode on tap for a couple of weeks. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah, this is, this is great stuff. I, I can't recommend it enough. And like I said, I got very excited when I read it. And I would like everybody else to do the same if they're inclined. And you made it through the episode without many coughs, my friend. Well done. Yeah, thank you. We appreciate your time and appreciate everybody listening to the show today. We'll see you next time right back here on Make the Dough Rise. Make the Dough Rise is brought to you by Living Worth Wealth Advisors with a central office in Greensboro, Georgia, but serving the Lake Country and beyond. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all your favorite podcasting apps. Subscribe today and never miss an episode. Just search for Make the Dough Rise with Brian Doe. You can also visit MakeTheDoughRise.com to listen to recent episodes. If you'd like to contact the show or schedule a complimentary financial review with Brian and the team, just go to MakeTheDoughRise.com and get in touch through the website. Or call 706-451-9800. Thanks for listening to Make the Dough Rise. Investment advisory services offered through Main Street Financial Solutions, LLC. Information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Information is obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accurateness and completeness cannot be guaranteed.